again this morning we have the privilege of talking about the subject of fellowship and uh, by the grace of God we hope to kind of wrap that subject up. This is very important as I've tried to lay out for you in the last couple of chapels this week because it's really the heart and soul of what we're all about here at the college. We are engaged in a very intense spiritual fellowship. We've talked about that fellowship. We've talked about the basis of that fellowship, which is salvation. We talked about the nature of that fellowship, which is sharing. Very important to understand that. And I want to get specific this morning, and I want to talk about the responsibilities that you have in the fellowship. The responsibilities that you have in the fellowship specifically. As you look at um, the fellowship, you can understand it theologically, you can understand its definition, you can understand its importance as we've tried to lay that out. But sooner or later, you've got to understand what it is. You've got to understand exactly what it means. And you now understand, I trust, that we are all linked together by a common eternal life and that fellowship is a matter of sharing together in spiritual realities. But what does it really boil down to? What does it really come down to in specifics? And I want to answer that as specifically as I can. I can't answer it in every possible specific, but I can give you enough of a feeling so that you'll know where to go from there. Fellowship, simply understood, comes down to what the New Testament calls one another's. The responsibilities of fellowship are not left to some mystery, they're not left to chance, they're not left to us to find, around, to find our way uh, around uh, some obstacles and barriers to assess them. They are patently, blatantly, overtly declared for us on the pages of the New Testament, and they're generally linked with a little phrase, one another. In fact, it is an exercise that every believer should engage in at some point, and that is to take the New Testament, just start uh, in the epistles, um, start in the book of uh, Romans, if you will, go right on through the remaining of the epistles in the New Testament. Every time you see the word one another, write down what it's referring to, and you will come up with a catalog of the responsibilities of fellowship of which we will address ourselves to some of those this morning. But it basically comes down to the one another's. I mentioned the epistles. Actually, it extends beyond that, but that's where you'll find the formulation of most of those one another's. It is the matter of serving one another. That is the responsibility of fellowship. My life is for you. Your life is for me. And as I pointed out on Wednesday, we are not all caught up in our own selves. We're not concerned about our own life. We rather look on the things of others than on our own things, considering others better and more important than ourselves, as Philippians 2 tells us. So that is really the heart and soul of it. And these responsibilities, frankly, are only discharged by people who are humble, so that the underlying grace of fellowship is humility. As long as I feel that everybody ought to serve me, I'm going to find it very hard to serve them. As long as I feel that I am the standard by which everybody should be measured, I'm going to have a hard time giving away my life on behalf of someone I perceive to be less important than myself. As long as I am the center of my world, then I'm going to make sure everything that goes on in my world somehow enhances my life, my comfort zone, my goals, dreams, achievements, and accomplishments. So the underlying grace that is behind and underneath fellowship is humility. I can say it as simply as this, this the only people who discharge the responsibilities of fellowship are humble people. So if you want a definition of humility, it's very hard to define apart from action. It's very hard to define humility. In fact, you can't define humility in any other way than what a person does. Humility should not be associated with uh, laziness. Some people think that if you're really kind of laid back and uh, 
slothful and sloppy in life, you must be humble. That's not the proper understanding of humility. Um, humility is not necessarily to be associated with a, a sort of a lack of confidence, uh, a sort of an apathy in general that causes you never to assert yourself. That's not humility either. Some people have even associated humility with poverty, and there are probably as many proud poor people as there are proud rich people. Now, humility is a grace that demonstrates itself in an ability to give my life away for somebody else. That's what humility really is. Humility is defined for us in Philippians chapter 2 by the Lord Jesus himself, who thought it not something to hold on to, to be equal with God. In other words, in eternity past, he was equal with God. He was, as John puts it, proston theon, face to face with the living God in a relationship of equality in the Trinity. But he thought that not something to hold on to or to grasp. But he divested himself of that immense privilege and humbled himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant. So in order to serve, you have to humble yourself. In order to exercise the responsibility of fellowship, you have to serve. And so fellowship leads to service, and service leads us back to humility. Only humble people really engage in fellowship. The essence of fellowship, the essence of giving my life away to somebody else, is that I esteem them more highly than I do myself. Now, understanding the underlying grace of humility, let's talk then about the responsibilities of fellowship. And to begin with, I want to take you to the 18th chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. I referred to it earlier in the week, and I want to go back and look at it in a little bit of detail because it's really very, very important. In the matter of uh, the responsibilities of fellowship, there are both negative and positive elements. In other words, uh, we exercise the responsibility of fellowship, first of all, by things we do not do, and secondly, by things we do. Okay? I'll say that again because it's really very important. It's a dividing line. We exercise the responsibilities of fellowship in a negative way by what we do not do, and in a positive way by what we do. And I want us to start with the negative side. Fellowship is expressed in negative ways. And we began to address that, and I want to get back into it a little bit here in Matthew chapter 18. Go back to verse 5. There's a sort of overarching principle that we refer to. Whoever receives one such little child on the ground of my name receives me. And remember now, we're talking here not about physical children, but about spiritual children, the little children of of which we are a part, who are the children of God, who are in the kingdom. We came in as little children, and we're still children in a maturing process. And how we treat each other, in effect, is how we treat Christ. How we treat each other is how we treat Christ. And then after that general principle in verse 5, notice this overwhelming statement in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones, what little ones? Babies? No. And I've heard many sermons preached using that as a reference to babies. It has nothing to do with physical babies, physical children. It tells us, whoever causes one of these little ones, what little ones, who believe in me. We're talking about believers here. Whoever causes a believer to stumble, it is better, or it is to his advantage, or to her advantage, that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is one of the strongest statements 
if not the strongest statement in all of the gospel record that Jesus ever made with reference to believers. He made some profound statements about unbelievers. In fact, some of them are in this same chapter. But he also made some very, very shocking statement, statements about believers. And here is such a statement. It would be better off for an individual to be drowned than to cause another believer to stumble. You would be better off dead than to be the cause of another Christian's stumbling into sin. You say, well, now, how do you know he's talking about believers here? Certainly, he must be talking about unbelievers. Yes, that's true. But in this text, he encompasses believers as well. Look at verse 7. And he says, woe to the world, or damnation to the world. The word woe means curse or damn. Damnation to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, and woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. In other words, he says, look, we would expect the world to cause a believer to stumble. We expect the wicked system to put stumbling blocks in the path of believers. We expect a corrupt culture to do that. We expect Satan, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this age, and all of his demon henchmen and all of the hypocritical liars, as Paul calls, calls them, who espouse the false teaching of Satan. We expect the world, the flesh, the devil, the whole evil system to put stumbling blocks in the path of Christians. They do that all the time. We expect it. And woe to them for doing it. But what we don't expect is that believers would do that. And so in verse 8 he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Now that, that little series of statements there appears on several occasions in the Gospels and is simply a way for the Lord to say, deal drastically with your sin. Deal drastically with your sin. That's the, the emphasis there. He doesn't literally mean go hack your hand off. Because if you're a thief at heart, you'll find another way to steal. He doesn't really want to associate lust purely with your eyes. I got news for you, blind people lust too. But the point here is that sin needs to be dealt with dramatically for your sake to start with, and the implication is for the sake of anyone else that you may influence. Here, of course, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's saying you have to deal dramatically with sin in your life because if you don't deal dramatically with the sin in your life, you are going to cause another believer to sin. We expect it from the world. We don't expect it from brothers and sisters. That's not part of the discharge of spiritual fellowship, is it? In fact, if you're going to cause another believer to sin, you would be better off what? Dead. This is serious. 
The implication of this is as serious as anything ever said to believers by our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? It has to be the most serious ever, ever because the, the, the end result of it is so profound. You'd be better off dead. And you know that some of the people in the Corinthian church experienced that. According to 1 Corinthians, they came to the Lord's table and they caused so much stumbling and so much sin that the Lord actually said to them, many of you are weak and sick and some of you are dead because of what you're doing in the assembly. And do you remember that in John's epistle, the first John, he said, you know, you may be praying for people and their problems, but I have to tell you there are some sins for which your prayers will have no effect because they are sins unto death. At the point where God says, look, you are such a problem to the fellowship, you are such a distraction to the fellowship, you are such an unresolved stumbling block that I'm going to remove you. You're better off out of the picture. That is as serious as it gets, my friend. You better be careful how you treat other believers with regard to being a cause of sin. You may think it's a harmless thing. Now, you may think you can get away from any kind of spiritual accountability and you can be out on your own with some of your friends and engage in something that is wicked. And you may say, well, yeah, I can, I'll have to deal with the Lord about my own life and you may feel some remorse. But will you remember this? If what you did caused somebody else to fall into the same sin, in the words of Jesus, you, my friend, would be better off dead. And guys, you can remember that when you take that girl out and you're all alone some evening and you want to compromise her purity. And if she is a child who belongs to Jesus Christ, you would be better off dead than to compromise that purity. You can remember that the next time you decide you're going to go out and see a movie that dishonors God and portrays a kind of morality that is a shame before a holy God and you go into that situation, you not only become culpable yourself, but when you take somebody with you, you expose them to temptation and sin. Just remember, you'd be better off dead. That's what Jesus says. Than to cause one of these little ones, so beloved by the Father, whom he has redeemed, to stumble into sin. Now, let me talk a little bit further about that. Go down to verse 10. This is what we mentioned the other day, and just expanding on it. See that you do not kataphraneo, look down on one of these little ones. Every single believer becomes for you a spiritual responsibility. And if you really are humble, and if you really look not on your own things but the things of others, and if it is really your passion to elevate that person toward Christ-likeness and to serve that person, you're not going to look down on them, you're going to look up to them. Don't despise one of these little ones. The world does that. Hebrews 11:32 to 38 says, The world despises the children of God, does terrible things to them. Satan despises them. Satan hates whom God loves, obviously. Isn't it enough that they have to deal with the, with the onslaught of an evil world? Isn't it enough that they have to deal with the assaults and the attacks of Satan himself? Isn't it enough that they have to cope with all of the evil system engulfed in a demonic world that is orchestrating everything it can to bring about their 
spiritual ineffectiveness isn't enough without compounding the difficulty of Christian experience by being a problem when you're supposed to be a help. It is enough. This is a warning to all of us, to me. And sometimes we can so easily forget this in our moments of selfishness and say, well, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do because I feel like doing it. It would be one thing if the culpability was only bound up in your deed and the thing which you did against yourself and against the Lord, but if you engage anybody else in this process, uh, you have caused them to stumble. I mean, it can be something as simple as um, doing something in the academic environment that you know isn't right, pulling someone in, you'd be better off dead. It could be something as simple as being assigned a work-study position on the campus and you're working together with people and you set a standard of labor and a standard of effort that is beneath that which honors Christ and you drag down others and you've caused them to stumble. Let me get specific. Here's how you can make another Christian stumble. I'll give you several ways in which it can happen. Number one, by flaunting your liberty. By flaunting your liberty. Some of you are going to say, you know, we have uh, liberty in Christ and, uh, you know, we, we aren't bound by legalism anymore. We're free in Christ and, uh, and uh, we're free to do this and that. It's not specifically forbidden in Scripture. And uh, in so doing that, you can cause what the Bible calls a weaker brother to stumble seriously. In Romans 14.3, it says, Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. You know what the scenario there was? A marvelous scenario. You got some guy who's been converted to Christ, okay? He's been converted to Christ maybe out of Judaism or he's been converted to Christ. Paul uses the other illustration, the Gentile one in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. But let's assume somebody's converted to Christ out of Judaism and he comes to the Lord and he comes over to your house for dinner some night and you serve him a ham sandwich. Well, he's been raised in Judaism so that he can't eat pork because that's not kosher. And you say to the guy, look, my friend, you've you got to realize, man, you're free in Christ. Don't call what Christ has cleansed unclean, you know, Acts 10. And you've got to enjoy your liberty. I mean, it's not a problem anymore. So will you just eat this deal? Don't make an issue out of it. But his conscience is really programmed because he's had a lifetime in Judaism. And he is very loyal to the programming of his conscience. And now you're teaching him to violate his conscience. Not a good thing. Even though his conscience is improperly educated, you need to wait until the educational process brings his conscience to a place of affirmation before you begin to teach him to violate his conscience. Because if you can teach a person to violate their conscience, you can cut them off from a crucial ministry that God wants to have in their life through their conscience. So when I find somebody who may be a new Christian and think something is wrong because it offends their conscience, I want to make sure that I don't ever offend that until the time comes when their conscience is a little more understanding because to train someone to violate their conscience can be to train them to get used to sinning. Because then when the conscience convicts them about a real sin, they will be so good at overriding their conscience that conscience ceases to have a proper function. Like I wrote about in my book, The Vanishing Conscience, that incredible plane crash in Spain in 1984 where the Avianca jet went into the mountain and they got the flight recorder box out of there and they thought, what in the world happened, as they always do? And they turned on the flight recorder box and this is what they heard. Spanish pilots, Avianca is a Spanish airline, and the pilots uh, were flying this deal along and all of a sudden this little voice in the computer said, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. 
And the computer voice was telling them that the radar was informing them there was a mountain out there. The radar gave them right information. The radar knew reality. The reality went from the radar to the little box, pull up, pull up, pull up. Inexplicably, the pilot said, shut up, gringo, and turned off the box. Shut up, gringo. In two minutes, they hit a mountain. Everybody's dead. It's an unimaginable thing that a guy would hear a warning and shut it off. And yet it's a marvelous analogy of how people treat their conscience. The conscience may know reality. It informs you, but you're so good at switching it off. And maybe it was something he was accustomed to doing under other circumstances. And he did it at the wrong time. And so you don't ever want to train anybody to violate their conscience. If you get to the place where you flaunt your liberty freely before weaker brothers, you may train them to violate their conscience, and consequently you become a part of training them to sin. Rather, Romans 15.1 says, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. If it offends them, don't do it. It's amazing to me to see, for example, a difference between a guy and a gal maybe who grow up in a Christian family is Ron was talking about, and, and uh, they grow up in that Christian family, and they become enamored with certain things in the culture. Maybe they become enamored, particularly pick music, they become uh, enamored with cultural music, and music is very cultural. You know, we all arrive at life at a certain point in time uh, in the history of music, and we sort of identify with the music of our time, and your parents had a music, and their parents had a music, and you know, you've got one, and the next generation will have another one, and we kind of fit in there somewhere. And it's amazing how Christian people can just accept the music of the contemporary environment. And uh, we've been raised as Christians, and uh, we listen to it, and it, it, all it is is what we hear. We don't know much of what's behind it. And it's a completely different reaction, for example, than guys that I've dealt with who've been converted to Christ out of a rock and roll band for whom that music is nothing but offensive because they can't separate it from the lifestyle, which you don't know or, or experience. But for them to go into an environment of Christians and hear that kind of music that says nothing to them but sex and drugs is an offense. And so there is a need to have sensitivity at every level as we operate within the fellowship and not flaunt our liberty. What you may be able to deal with in your conscience, somebody else may not be able to deal with, and that's the essence of humility and function in the framework of the fellowship. You set aside your own priorities. You set aside your own prerogative for the sake of the weaker brother. And he gives a marvelous illustration of that in 1 Corinthians 10. Here's a little scenario. I won't turn to the text at the end of the chapter. He paints a picture. Here's a mature Christian, been around a long time. He's got a new Christian friend. They've both been converted out of paganism. And uh, out of their prior lifestyle, typically, they would go to a temple and worship some pagan god, Aphrodite or whoever it was. They would go and worship this pagan god. And connected with the worship of this pagan god was a, was a meal, a sacrificial meal, just like uh, you would expect. They would bring in, people would bring offerings and sacrifices like they do today in Buddhist situations and many other Hindu temples and things like that. They bring a sacrifice in, they lay it on an altar. Part of that is going to be burned and part of it's going to be consumed by the person bringing the offering. That's part of it. So they eat a sort of a sacrificial meal. Okay? That was a part of their paganism. They would go in there to those temples. There were temple prostitutes. Uh, they would engage in sexual activity. They actually believed, if you can imagine it, that an engagement with a sexual prostitute priestess could elevate you to a higher level of spiritual understanding. So that in the euphoria of the sex act with the priestess, you were ascending to the gods. 
So they would go in and there would be an orgy and there would be eating and even gluttony. They used to have places in the middle of the floor where you could go vomit so you could reload. You would engage in this orgy, this sex, this music. I've been in the temple of Bacchus, the remains of it in, uh, in Damascus. It's an incredible, incredible thing, actually in Baalbek, which is east of Damascus. And uh, this whole debauchery kind of environment. All right, so you got a guy who's been saved out of that for several years, and he's pretty well learned his liberties in Christ, and, and it's not really still hanging on. He's got a young Christian friend. He's just converted out of this kind of stuff. Together they go to dinner at some guy's house. And the guy's an unbeliever. He's an unbeliever still in that worship. They sit down to eat. Their objective is evangelistic. This is the scene in 1 Corinthians 10. So the guy walks out and he puts a big pile of meat on the table. Then he goes back in the kitchen to get whatever else is to be added to that. And the young guy, the new Christian, looks at the older Christian and says, Man, I wonder if this is meat that's been offered to idols. You know why? Because not all the meat that they brought into the temple was burned, and not all the meat that they brought into the temple was eaten. Some of it was taken out the back by the priests and sold. That's how they made their living. And probably the best place to get a good buy was at the temple butcher shop. So the guy may have bought this stuff once it was offered to an idol. Now it's sold on the marketplace. This might have been meat offered to an idol. And if you're the older Christian, you'll say, Hey, man, don't you, don't you understand what the Apostle Paul taught? An idol is nothing. An idol is nothing. What's an idol? It's a nothing. It's a nobody. There's nothing there, folks. It's a stick. It's a stone. It's nothing. Nobody. So what? It's good meat, man. Bought at a good price. We've got to evangelize this guy. Don't be making trouble. Right? But the, but the younger Christian, the baby Christian, is starting to gag and he hasn't taken a bite. Because all that meat represents to him is all the garbage of his past life. And he just can't get into it. It, it just, he can't handle it. It's like the memories that linger in our minds over things that we may have eaten as a child. You know, I mean, I haven't eaten peas since I was six. I had a bad experience. And it's still, I still am not a liberated believer when it comes to eating peas. I confess. But anyway, so here's this believer and he, he says to the young guy, look man, will you just eat this stuff? Because this guy, I mean, we're trying to win this guy to Christ. Let's not have an argument over whether or where did he buy this deal and what God was it offered to. Just eat the stuff. An idol is nothing. You're free, brother. You're free. So the guy comes back in. What's, what's the right approach? The younger brother says, I can't eat. Absolutely can't eat. What should the older Christian do? Should he please his younger brother who doesn't have liberty to eat, or should he please the unsaved guy he's trying to reach? Answer? Surprising. He should please the younger Christian. And if it is a real offense to that younger Christian, what he should say to that guy is, you know something, I can't eat this. I am so appreciative of this. I am so grateful for this. I just can't eat it. Because you see, to eat this would offend my brother. And he was just converted out of this kind of idol worship. And this speaks of all that the Lord has taken out of his life. And he just can't deal with this. He's not free to eat this. And in an expression of love to him, I'm not going to cause him to stumble. I'm not going to violate his conscience. That's the right approach. You say, well, what about the guy who, who's not saved? Isn't he going to be upset? Yeah, but look at it this way. If the guy, the mature Christian says, hey, I'm going to eat this meat, my friend. If he's offended, that's tough. 
the, the unconverted guy is going to conclude it's better to be unconverted than to be converted. This guy is more anxious to demonstrate love toward me, and I'm not his brother, than he is toward this guy who is. Better to be a non-Christian. They'll treat you nicer. The Apostle Paul says, you offend the unbeliever for the sake of love. And what is the message to the unbeliever? Wow! What kind of marvelous commitment to purity and holiness and the tender conscience of his fellow this guy demonstrates. You don't flaunt your liberty because that's how to lead someone into violating their conscience and learning how to sin. Secondly, another way that uh, people despise other believers is by looking down on them. Looking down on them. And it particularly, it particularly seems to relate to um, things that are, I guess, on a social strata level. Somebody doesn't have the right clothes, somebody doesn't have the right background, somebody doesn't have the right savoir-faire in life. This is so distasteful to the Lord that in uh, the inspired text of James, chapter 2, it says, Don't have your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Don't say to this person who has a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, you know, sit up here in the front in a good place and say to this poor man in dirty clothes, get down there under the footstool out of the way. Don't make those kind of distinctions. Don't make social distinctions. That's another tragic way that we despise and we lead people really into sin because we won't embrace them and carry their burdens and carry their cares and demonstrate love. A third way that you can cause a believer to stumble is by withholding from them what they need withholding from them what they need. You're going to find as you become a part of life here at the college, you're going to come across people who have a lot of needs. And uh, one of the things that just made the heart of God grieve in the Corinthian church was in 1 Corinthians 11:21. in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk. And he says you should be shamed in this. Do you despise the church? Are you looking down on the church as long as you're fed, as long as you get you what you want, are you going to disregard the needs of others? You can cause a person to stumble into sin by disregarding their needs, by flaunting your liberty. You can cause them to stumble by looking down on them. Um, I suppose you could cause someone to stumble by ridiculing their physical features by being indifferent to the unbeautiful, such a distasteful thing in the family of God. You know, they did that with Paul. Second Corinthians 10.10, 10, they said his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is very unimpressive. What they were saying was, the guy can write, but is he ugly? And what a heartbreak that is for people to bear. You can, um, you can cause a believer to stumble by being indifferent to a Christian who has fallen. If a brother is overtaken in a fault, Galatians 1 says, uh, Galatians 6, 1 says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in love, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. When you can look at somebody struggling with sin and stumbling and be indifferent toward that, that's, that's a serious offense. Because you, can, because you leave them alone to try to find their way out of the pain and the pit of their own trouble. 
Um, another way that you can cause another Christian to sin is certainly by taking advantage of them. That's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, don't defraud one another. Don't you dare defraud one another. Don't you dare take somebody, something from somebody that is precious to them, that belongs to them. And in that context, he's talking about sexual things. Men, don't you take something that is pure and precious from a woman. Women, don't you take something that is pure and precious from a man. That's defrauding them. That's defrauding them. And all such defrauding is very serious before God. Because it says right after that, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. And then he says, and if you reject this, you're not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. When you're messing around with the purity of another believer, you're messing around with one who belongs to God and is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Very serious. Very serious. So there are a number of ways in which you can cause a believer to stumble. And I've just suggested a few by flaunting your liberty and teaching them how to sin by violating conscience, by looking down on them so that they're left, as it were, in their deprivation, withholding from their need, ridiculing them, being indifferent to their stumblings and their falls and their sins. You can look down on them by taking advantage of them. Back to where we started. Rather than do this, Jesus said, you'd be better off to die a terrible, terrible death. Not just any death. The Jews said the most fearful death of all was drowning. And it is a frightening, frightening way to die. So, the negative side then of fellowship is what we don't do to others. We don't cause them to sin. Now, let me close. What about what we do? And I don't need to go into a lot of detail because I think it can be very obvious from the Scripture. What are the positive sides of fellowship? Well, let me just give you a few, and these are only representative. Take James 5.16. Here's one. Confess your sins, hamartia, to one another. There's a one another. Confess your sins to one another. That is a marvelous thing. That is a helpful thing. That is a positive thing. Let me read you what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about this again. It is just really powerful. The final breakthrough, this is great, the final breakthrough to real fellowship occurs when people enter the fellowship and express it as sinners. Man, that's good. You see, the pious false fellowship permits nobody to be a sinner. Everybody then has to conceal his sin. Right? Because the pious fellowship doesn't want sinners. So we dare not be sinners. And many Christians are... Um, Unthinkably horrified when a real sinner shows up. So we train people to be hypocrites who will not confess their sins one to another, but rather they live in lies and they live in hypocrisy. 
You are a sinner. You want to know something? You are a desperate sinner. So am I. And God saved me as a sinner. And God sees me as a sinner. And I must be content to let you see me as he sees me. God has come to me to save the sinner. He's come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. That's a message that liberates you. You have nothing to hide from God. Why do you have anything to hide from somebody else? The mask you wear before men, you certainly don't wear before Him. He wants to see you as you are, and amazingly, He loves you as you are. But do you know how encouraging it is for you to be open and transparent about your sin? Because the people you're being open and transparent to about your sin are so liberated because they know that it's absolutely no different than the way they are. And it liberates all of us from this facade of hypocrisy where we're all trying to cover up the reality. You don't have to go on lying to yourself. You don't have to go on lying to your brothers and sisters as if you were without sin. You're not kidding us. We know you because we know us. And isn't it much more wonderful to take us the way we are and be a help to each other? Isn't it much more wonderful to see us the way God sees us? Isn't it much more wonderful to really elevate grace because we can acknowledge that it's operating in our lives all the time? Because the only way we ever understand ongoing operation of grace is to understand our ongoing sinfulness. And let me give you something else to think about. Sin demands to have a person alone. Sin wants to draw you right out of the fellowship and isolate you. And the more isolated you are, the more destructive will be the power of sin in your life. The more isolated you are, the more power sin will have over you. And the more it will suck you into the black hole, the more deeply involved in it you will become, and the more disastrous will be that isolation. Sin wants you to be alone. Sin wants nobody to know what your real besetting sin is. Sin wants nobody to know the real depth of your temptations. Sin wants it all hidden. Sin hates the light. It shuns the light. It runs from the light. And it is in the darkness of the unexpressed that sin poisons the whole person. You don't have to tell everybody your sin. You need to tell somebody. Because sin needs to be in the light exposed. The unexpressed needs to be expressed. The unacknowledged needs to be acknowledged. The unspoken needs to be spoken. Not to the whole church, but to somebody. All that is secret and hidden needs to be made manifest. It's a hard struggle, but when sin is openly admitted, God breaks through those gates of iron and sets us free. And when you confess your sin, not just before God, but when you confess your sin in the presence of a Christian brother, listen to this one, the last stronghold of self-justification is destroyed. And you've surrendered. You've surrendered to your fallenness. You're not hiding it. And everybody else is relieved because they've been hiding it too. And now you have the breakthrough in fellowship. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost its power because its power is its privacy. It can no longer rip the fellowship apart. It divorces all the hypocrites. And the fellowship now bears the sin of the confessing sinner.
He's no longer alone with his evil. He's cast his sin open in confession. It's given to God. It's given to his brother or his sister. And so it's not his alone anymore. And he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by grace. And now he can be a sinner too, like all the rest, and enjoy the grace. He can confess his sins and in this very act find fellowship. Real fellowship, maybe, for the first time. So... What are some of the positive things in the fellowship? Confess your sins to one another. There's a second one, Colossians 3.13, forgive one another. Forgive one another. And then Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Help them carry the burden of that temptation. And then there's 1 Peter 1.22, love one another, so that all of this confessing and forgiving and reproving is all in the context of loving and then there's Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another to holiness and godliness. And then there's Romans 14.19, edify one another, build one another up to become spiritually strong. And then there's Colossians 3.16, teach one another and admonish one another. And then there's James 5.16, pray for one another. And I wish we had time to go through all of those. We don't. That's really all the fellowship is. Sometimes you hear the phrase today, I don't know, I've seen it on some t-shirts, I don't know what it, where it comes from, get real. That's really all it is. The basis of fellowship is salvation. The nature of fellowship is sharing in spiritual realities. The responsibility of fellowship is in humility to give myself away to you. It has a negative side. There are things I don't do. And as a positive side, there are things I will do. And the end result of both of those, negative and positive, is to lead my fellow Christian down a path of virtue and righteousness and godliness and holiness so that they can be all that God wants them to be. And that's it. Let me sum it up by reading you a benediction. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Then this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and what's the last one? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Stand with me, will you, as we have our closing prayer. Father, we thank you for these few days that we've had to talk about the tremendous significance of fellowship. Lord, it's the prayer of my heart that as we go through this year together in the fellowship here, it'll be the sweetest fellowship we've known, the most fulfilling and productive. And you'll accomplish your good purpose in all of our lives, even as you come to us through the life of those around us. Bless this fellowship. May it please heaven. And may we know the joy of such pleasure in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.